Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Well, at the risk of dating myself, <laughs> do you all remember when cell phones were brand new? Mm -hmm. yep. You know, uh, we'd carry our cell phones around talking to people and then we'd say, can you hear me? And so we'd move to another part of the house. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I mean, we spent a lot of time asking people if they could hear us when we were talking on the early cell phones. Well, that was a slogan of a well-known commercial that Verizon did. Um, the can you hear me now was the catchphrase of the commercial. Interestingly, Paul Marcarelli, the spokesperson of that ad, and that ad, by the way, ran for nine years. Um, Paul Marcarelli uh, of Verizon uh, eventually sprinted over <laughs> to Sprint, right? But this question, can you hear me now? may well be the central point of today's gospel reading. Last week I told you we explored a parable that a lot of biblical scholars say there's no redeeming value in it. I don't know if you remember, but the, the parable uh, talked about a dishonest manager. And then the dishonest manager actually got praised for being clever and wise and uh, getting the things he needed. And that just flies in the face of us, doesn't it? I mean, it just doesn't seem right. It's not right. It's just not right. <laughs> in today's reading, we hear another of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to remind you right here at the outset that parables are often not what they seem at the outset. Um... Consider this. It is Luke's gospel that reports Jesus is born in a barn in a poor backwater town. Luke, who features Mary singing, celebrating how God fills up the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. It is Luke's gospel who tells of Jesus preaching in his hometown synagogue, bringing a message of his mission to bring good news to the poor. Luke has Jesus in Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are you who are poor. Oh, and by the way, it's Luke who says, and woe to you who are rich. It is in Luke we hear Jesus' stories of the rich fool who builds ever larger barns, the rich ruler, her rich ruler who turns away from following in the way of Jesus because he was very rich. The story of Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, who promises Jesus that he will give half his fortune to the poor and pay back those that he has stolen from. And we heard last week that what we do with our money and resources is an important indicator of our spiritual maturity, or lack thereof. 
Notice that in all of Jesus' parables, Lazarus is the only character who is given a name. And his name means God has helped. And this Lazarus is not the same Lazarus that we find in the Gospel of John, who is brought out of the tomb, called forth from the tomb, and resurrected by Jesus. Although, I just have to wonder if the writer of the Gospel of John that comes later than the Gospel of Luke might have read that parable. After all, you know, it is Lazarus who is brought up into the bosom of Abraham, as the, old, as the King James Version <laughs> tells it, brought up into the bosom of Abraham. I mean, I wonder if that writer of the Gospel of John got the idea for the name of Lazarus uh, from this Gospel of Luke, this parable. Um, so it's not the same. Uh, so don't conflate these two stories. The name of Lazarus, however, humanizes him, right? When we get somebody's name, it sort of makes that person uh, human to us. And, um, and this Lazarus uh, has a name and continues to point to Jesus' solidarity with the poor. Equally important to note, the rich man doesn't get a name. Fascinating, isn't it? That the writer knows that to name somebody humanizes them, to keep them without a name allows us to see them differently. While the rich man merrily feasts, and, it, and, and the Greek there is all about being merry and celebrating and having a great time, merrily feasts, Lazarus lies hungry and sick at his gate. Here's the question. Do you think the rich man noticed him? Or is the rich man oblivious inside his palace, protected by his privilege? Or does he pass by Lazarus and his comings and goings through the gate and just ignores him? Or refusing him help? Well, we get the answer. It comes straight from hell. <laughs> the rich man pleads to Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. He names him. So not only did he notice him, but he knows his name. Yes, he knows Lazarus. But he still thinks of Lazarus as somebody he can command to do things, right? Go tell Lazarus, stick his finger in the water to cool my, and dip it in on my tongue to cool my pain and my suffering. He still thinks of him as a servant. The plea speaks volumes about not only this man's lack of generosity, but also his clueless entitlement, even as he burns in hell. The very person 
He refused to help. He now pleads with Father Abraham that that person would help him. I, I, I don't know anybody like that. Do you? I just wonder if we are able to see this kind of privileged cluelessness at work in our own society. Immigrants, pregnant women, suicidal trans youth, ignored, cast aside, pushed to the edge, made to believe they don't matter, left in their poverty. Poverty that is not just uh, wealth and physical poverty, but poverty of the heart, of life, of living. Now, Abraham's response in particular, the first response, in which he looks at the rich man and says, child, is a blunt war warning, isn't it? I mean, I mean, yes, this rich man is a child of Abraham. But at the end of the day, it's action. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God, and loving your neighbor as yourself that Jesus wants us to pay attention to and what matters most. The story is told in such a way that as listeners, we are not placed in the role of Lazarus or the rich man. Instead, we are placed in the role of the rich man's siblings. The rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his family, but Abraham is unmoved. If they haven't listened to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to a new messenger, even one raised from the dead. In short, this response places Jesus squarely in the ancient stream of the Jewish tradition of listening to Moses and the prophets. Oh, and here's the last kicker line, right? In the last words of Abraham, there's that illusion, that foreshadowing about the one who rises from the dead. In short, Jesus is saying even his resurrection won't add to what they and we have received from Moses and the prophets. For Luke, Jesus doesn't just move beyond Judaism, doesn't move beyond Judaism, much less supersede it or leave it behind. Jesus stands in an ancient tradition, and the Jesus movement that followed him is about making its core wisdom. The ideas already made perfectly clear in Moses and the prophets, available to Jews and Gentiles, that would be us, alike. We should remember against the long and sordid history of Christian anti-Judaism, this parable is a shining example of how Jesus and Luke has the opposite in mind. What they want is a deep respect for Jewish wisdom. We as Christians would do well to listen to Jesus, right? Because when we do, we are also listening to an ancient tradition that goes all the way, way back to the beginning and that comes to completion, for Christians at least, in the resurrection of Jesus, but does not reject Jewish wisdom. 
I want to ask you a question. Do you remember first hearing about hell? <laughs> Did it scare the bejesus out of you or what? <laughs> I'm going to tell you that uh, I grew up in the Methodist church. So we didn't talk all that much about going to hell. But I got the message somewhere. I don't know if it was going with my friend Sue Heard to the First Baptist Church Vacation Bible School or going with my friend Pamela Hill to the Catholic Church. I don't know where I got it, but it was there, and it was scary. It was really scary, right? Giving yourself over so that you won't land in hell. The whole message of salvation was couched in this idea that you had to commit yourself to Jesus with a particular prayer, I might add, and then you were okay. Well, we were Southern Methodists, so I'm sure we had some of that going on at our church. But let me just say, this focus of salvation for Christians results in our lack of care of the creation results in a lack of care for those in need because if all we're worried about is there and then, we don't have to worry about here and now, right? If the focus is all on what happens after death, we don't have to worry about that. At the same time, this focus on salvation causes us to deny and fear death because if you don't do what's right, you're going to end up in that place with flames and pain, according to this parable, at least. You know, gnashing of teeth. That's exactly right. So let's consider the true focus of this parable. There's a, you know, this, this parable reads like a, a bit of a fable with an urgent warning. But let's be clear, this isn't instruction about death and the afterlife. Even though many preachers make it about death and the afterlife. I mean, if you take the whole middle of the parable with Abraham and the rich man talking and bantering back and forth, it begins to be focused on death and the afterlife. But that's not the point of the parable. Though we have made it that. That's where all our imagery of suffering in hell I mean, there's a lot of other imagery throughout the Gospels, but that's where, I mean, here we get a vivid picture of somebody suffering in hell, right? And so all of this has been made the central focus of so much of our preaching and our teaching about this parable. I mean, on the contrary, this is a, a story meant to focus our attention, to rouse us from our privileged slumber, and wake up and listen to the teachings of Jesus, the voice of God, and the urgings of the Holy Spirit. That's what the real focus of this message is about. You see, our culture repeatedly tells us that we need to save more for our future, and saving is good, granted, but at what point does our saving cause us to forget our privilege and wealth and fail to hear the voice of God to care for creation and the poor, because that's really what God's interested in, you know? We need to care for ourselves. We need to be healthy. We need to save. 
We need to think about the future, but when we get so obsessed with it, we, lo we lose focus. We lose what Jesus intends for us. I want to remind you that as a country, we're very wealthy. And, and, and wealth ebbs and flows in life. And we have catastrophes of health and, and, and jobs and, and all of that. But as a country as a whole, we're wealthy. In a groundbreaking study by Just Facts in 2019, they reported that after accounting for all income, charity, and non-cash welfare benefits, like subsidized housing and food stamps, the poorest 20% of Americans consume more goods and services than the national averages for all people in most affluent countries. In other words, if the US poor people were a nation all their own, it would be one of the world's wealthiest countries. Unfortunately for us, our wealth, in many cases, makes us tone deaf to those who are poor and suffering and struggling. We fail to see them. We fail, fail to hear them. We fail to know their names. Oh, and our wealth and our subsequent messages that come with it also make us tone deaf to the voice of God. So what if Jesus' point is not to teach us about life after death? Luke has included several teachings having to do with money, including the central truth that we cannot serve both God and money. And this parable provides a powerful incentive for us to use our money for the sake of others, and particularly in caring for the poor, those who are struggling. But even this is not the main point of Jesus' parable. It's a good point. It's not the main point. Um, the focus of the parable is paying attention to God. Because if we pay attention to God, all this other stuff will fall into place. Abraham's response to the rich man's plea is not encouraging. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen if even someone rises from the dead. So could it be that Jesus' parable is a prediction of how people will not listen to him? I wonder if it is Jesus, God's human revelation of love, who is actually the one asking, can you hear me now? As I read this parable, I'm encouraged to consider my own generosity to the poor or lack thereof, which I think is good. It's a good reflection. It's good for us to reflect on who we are and how we love and how we care for creation and, and, and our neighbors. But even more, I'm challenged to think about whether or not I am listening to God. I mean, do we hear when God speaks through Moses and the prophets? Do we hear when God speaks through the Psalms or the writings of Paul? Most of all, do we listen to the one whom God raised from the dead? Do we listen to God, really? Are there things God is saying to us that we refuse to hear? What helps us to listen to God with an open heart and a receptive mind? And how, when we listen, what will it be that we hear? Well, 
I know you're discouraged now. I've been carrying on for a bit. (laughs) But there's good news here. The good news is that we can take heart in the fact that God is faithful to us. We are not supposed to do this alone. We don't have to figure this out alone. We don't have to live in a vacuum. We live in a community of faithful people. We live in a world filled with people who are following in the way of Jesus, who are listening. You know, I do that little app where I look at who all's meditating around the world at the same time. And there are millions of them. When I sign on, there's always millions of people meditating. I mean, I'm telling you, it is inspirational. I mean, it really is. You see, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this truth. This is so good. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the very Spirit of God intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. You're not in this alone. We don't have to figure out this all by ourselves. And Jesus promises this. At the end of the Gospel of John, in the final discourse, this is what he says to the disciples and so to us. The companion, the Holy Spirit, she whom my Abba who is God in heaven, will be sent to you in my name and will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. That's the promise we live in. That's the promise of our true story, the story that permeates all of our living, the story of being born and living and dying and being born again. This is the central story of our faith. And we can listen to the promises of God and know that God is with us and we are not alone. And you don't have to do this alone. Praise the Lord. Can you hear God now? Amen.